You all look very beautiful to me. Including all of you at home, in your home environment. I So this talk is called It's like someone reaching for a pillow in the dark. And it's dedicated to my teachers and friends, Rebecca Bradshaw and Matthew Brensilver. It's inspired by their wisdom. So once upon a time, there was a princess. And this princess had a superpower. Her superpower was that she could hear the cries of the world. And so she listened and she listened. She kept listening. And at a certain point, it was too much all the sorrows that landed in her ears and in her heart. And so she broke into a thousand pieces. And what happened next, after the shatter, was that she took the form of the thousand hands bodhisattva. And I'm sure you've seen these pictures of Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara, Genrezi, these deities that have a thousand arms and a thousand hands. And on each palm of the hand is an eye. Because her ability now is to hear and see the cries of the world with ease. And all that capacity to hear and see and then help with her hands and her arms. And so the Zen koan goes like this. It says, Yunyan asked Dao Wu, how does the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin use those many hands and eyes? Dao Wu answered, it's like someone reaching for a pillow in the dark. And Yunyan said, I understand. And Dao Wu said, it's like many hands and eyes all over your body. And Yunyan said, that's almost right. It's like hands and eyes all through your body. What does that mean? What does it mean? So here we are. It's almost the darkest night of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. We're in the Northern Hemisphere. Dark, long nights. Had a lot of rain here at Spirit Rock. And for many, in the weeks leading up to this, I was speaking to family and friends, I had several people say to me, you know, my favorite day of the year is December 22nd when it starts getting light again. (laughs) So how is that for us, though? To really embrace the darkness, this retreat, embracing the dark. It's difficult. Many of us in this time of year, it's difficult. We have seasonal affective disorder. The weather goes cold. Things are harder. Holidays bring up all kinds of things for different people. And now you just look at the state of our world. It's very chaotic. It's very scary. It's hard to be in this world. It's hard to be a human being in this world. 
And often, don't we just feel like we're kind of reaching for something in the dark? I loved Oren's image crawling along this, this path. It's like crawling in the dark. Don't quite know. And it's terrifying sometimes to not know how things are going to turn out. And I can say for myself, it's very much a period of that for me in my life. I just spent a month up in cabin retreat in solitude in the mountains in Oregon. And without any electricity, the nights are very long and very dark. A lot of walking meditation just in the light of one candle. And feeling that quivering of fear, of feeling alone, feeling not quite knowing what's next. Stepping, stepping. A lot of fear. But this darkness, as maybe as we've been feeling together as we sit in the dark, in the candlelight, it doesn't have to be uh, an obstacle. It doesn't have to obscure the truth. In fact, it might be the truest thing. And so this path is one of courage. It's one of willingness to go out to places that scare us, to sit together and alone in the dark. Perhaps to let those many hands and eyes all through the body feel their way through this luminous darkness. And at a certain point, maybe there's only hands and eyes, inside and outside, illuminating what's true. So we have to know how to hold ourselves in this dark, trust the other hands, the invisible ones that are holding these bones, this heart, and to find refuge in something that's uh, maybe not so obvious, refuge in something other than conventional truth. Ajahn Suchito says, in order to understand We need to stand under. We have to stand under our difficulty. We don't pole vault over it to the nice bit on the other shore. Instead, we stand under it as it cascades over us. When there is a complete standing under, we feel the quality of that flood. You look to where things touch you, where things are felt. This is reaching for a pillow in the dark. And I love, I've been loving this poet, John O'Donohue. So we began the retreat with his words, and I'll offer another poem for him, from him now. Decide to call on your heart that it may grow clear and free to welcome home your emptiness that it may cleanse you like the clearest air you could ever breathe. Allow your loneliness time to dissolve the shell of dross that had closed around you. 
Choose in this severe silence to hear the one true voice your rushed life fears. Cradle yourself like a child, learning to trust what emerges, so that gradually you may come to know that in that black hole you will find the blue flower that holds the mystical light which will illuminate you the glimmer of springtime. You'll find in that black hole the blue flower that holds the mystical light, a thousand hands and thousand eyes. So in this talk, I want to cover Uh, some of the territory around not knowing, how this can be uh, a kind of really not seeing, a kind of ignorance, delusion, how we move through that into knowing and understanding. This path is one of knowing and seeing. And then perhaps another kind of not knowing. That's the other side of this as well. So in Buddhism, we're not studying Buddhism here actually. We're studying the self. We're learning to see the self in a particular way. And in fact, vipassana, pasana means to see. And the prefix v means in a particular way, in a special way, or maybe in an inward kind of way. So we're learning to see from the inside out those many hands and eyes. We're learning to see things parse things out, parse the threads of experience, so we really get to know who we are, actually. This special kind of seeing. And what we've been doing here, this mindfulness is very close to that kind of knowing. Don and Oren so beautifully today are leading us into this Vipassana territory. We've been doing samatha settling. Now, Vipassana, we begin to see this process. We see the characteristics of things. We see the Four Noble Truths. In the sutta, the Dhammachaka Pawatana Sutta, the sutta that names the Four Noble Truths, is said to be the first teaching, the first Dharma talk the Buddha gave. He gave it to just five of his friends. But Dhammachaka means the wheel of Dharma. So it started the wheel of Dharma turning. And the language in this sutta, very repetitive, many suttas are. He repeats Three times each truth, I saw, I began to understand, and then I really understood, and then I fully understood this first noble truth. And again and again, in all of these 12 verses, this is the phrase. He says, when I fully understood this noble truth, one, two, three, four, there arose in me, friends, vision, knowledge, insight, wisdom, light, concerning things unknown before. There we have a lot of knowing. Vision, light, wisdom. This is what we're doing. And you've had glimpses of this, each of you, when you see things in a new way or you step outside and it's like new breath. You see yourself from a new angle. This is what we're doing, little ways and big ways here. So this is the foundation of the path, and we hear a lot about 
not seeing, avidya, ignorance, ignorance. The Buddha tells us that ignorance is the wellspring of all suffering. In the Samyutta Nikaya, he says, ignorance is the leader in the attainment of unskillful qualities, followed by a lack of conscience and a lack of concern. Wrong view, wrong intention, wrong speech, wrong livelihood. It goes through the eight noble truths with ignorance at its root or the eightfold path. So delusion, the foundation of all of our difficulties, it's the root of the two other kleshas, right? We hear about greed, aversion, and ignorance, but ignorance drives them because it says to us, if you just get what you want, you're going to be okay. You're going to be happy. And if you just get rid of what you don't want, what you don't like, you're going to be okay. You're going to be happy. It doesn't see that delusion, that ignorance doesn't see that wanting is very different from getting. It doesn't see the pain of being in that push-pull and trying to drive away all of the world and its distractions. It doesn't see the pain of that resistance. It doesn't see unreliability. It doesn't see the impersonal nature of things. It doesn't see how everything is changing, vanishing, vanishing, vanishing doesn't see how futile it is to try to cling. So delusion functions as that kind of not seeing, but it can also be a protective strategy. We feel this sometimes in the body. Have you felt a freeze? Anybody felt numb today? Sometimes when we feel that nervous system kind of shutting down in a freeze, it's a protection, it's a defense against danger and fear. We can start to become aware of that kind of delusion, to feel how it's protecting us. It's numbing us out from the edge, the sharp edge of reality. Because it's a lot to take. Have you seen that yet? It's a lot. So it functions by dulling the mind, kind of fuzzing things out, anesthetizing us. And through that, we're living in this kind of vague mind world where then the mind is like, well, I'm going to try to figure out what, what I do know. And we make stories. We make all kinds of stories through our delusion. I'm doing it wrong. I'm not good enough. I'm suffering, so I'm a failure. There's something innate broken in me. Or just the story of, like, I can control my life. If I just got this right, if I can just manipulate all these little details so they're just in alignment perfectly, and I get the schedule, and I know all the ways to take care of myself, all the right equipment for meditation, like fidgeting my way, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get there. I'm going to be happy. And if I don't, if I can't, then something's wrong. I'm doing it. We take it personally. We permanize things. Permanent. We think everything's permanent. We fix it, right? I'm always going to be this sad, broken person. Or I'm having an amazing retreat. I'm good. I'm going to be happy for the rest of the time. It's good. Delusion. We should have a sense of humor about delusion. Because we do believe the funniest things, don't we? We think we know the story of other people. We think we understand them. 
we think like there's a whole way about the dining hall and what's happening there. It's all, it's all just story, isn't it? Dreaming our way in the dark. But it is, this is the attempt to find some kind of safety and security in a world that's shaking, in which pretty much everything is unreliable. And that terrifies us. So of course, our animal body is going to try to seek security. And delusion is right there, ready to help. T.S. Eliot says that most people can't handle too much of reality. And we really get a dose of this. It's so humbling to be in retreat when we're face-to-face with our own mind, hour after hour after hour with nothing else going on. Reality is really a lot to take, isn't it? It's wild. It's unpredictable. Rebecca says we're trying to increase our reality tolerance through this practice. And then one of my favorite authors, Pema Chodron, she says that the truth is inconvenient, these three characteristics. It's inconvenient that everything changes. We just got it kind of all settled right, and now there's pain in the body. We think we're smooth sailing, and some big knot opens up. So we prefer convenience. Delusion comes and tries to make that structure for us. Controlling the narrative. So just a few techniques that can help us to see delusion and to work beyond it. So the first thing is to relax. Relax all the ways you think you know. Sense of humor is very good. Dropping down into the body is very helpful because the body has a different kind of truth. There's actually less delusion in the body, right? The body is made of hands and eyes. It's always telling you the truth in some kind of way. And so by dropping down, as we keep encouraging you to do, and befriending it, whether you feel it or not, or it's all these aches and pains, all, it's lots of loud stuff in there in the body often, right? Pleasant, unpleasant. But it's a different kind of knowing, It's less cloudy mind. It's more visceral, bone-dense kind of knowing. And of course, we know as you've been working through the postures and all the different ways this body adapts to a whole day of sitting and walking, this takes a lot of courage. And particularly for those of us who live with chronic illness and injury and the whole kind of formula of aging and illness and death that we all signed up for, it takes a lot of bravery to be in this body, in this world. The body's vulnerable. It's fragile. We try to do as much as we can. We, we help. We shift posture. We create what we can, right? The conditions. And... We have to also surrender to the nature of this body. This grows a lot of wisdom, this kind of practice. And the desire for freedom in the body, in the heart, in the mind has to supersede our desire for comfort. We have to care more and believe more that freedom and liberation of mind 
is what's possible. Comfort, not so much. For little bits of time, maybe. So we have to kind of turn. We have to keep inclining in a different way. It's very, it's difficult because it's a deep pattern to be comfortable. So we start to see all these patterns and these habits, and in some ways our own foolishness, see all this delusion. And that's a good sign we start to wake up to it, the ways that our perception distorts reality. We see the passing of each moment. We see the struggle with, I've heard many of you say this really deep wisdom of like, oh, I'm seeing how I'm stressed, right? We're like uncomfortable, so we're going to get a snack or tea or just try to get something a little better. And we see our whole lives are driven by this. We're busy because we don't actually want to turn in and have that courage. But when we do, sati, our mindfulness, our good friend, is going to help us see things in a new way. The French Zen teacher Jacques Kosterman says, spiritual experience is to see differently. Not to see something else. I might see this flower every day, and all of a sudden I can see it differently. I'm taken aback. And for that, I have to be attentive, taking care of the act of seeing. Have you had that experience yet, seeing yourself in a new way or the moment as fresh? In Tibetan, they have this exclamation, Imaho, Imaho, how wondrous. Each moment is so wondrous because it's new. And we don't actually know what it will bring. We don't know. So part of this knowing and seeing, part of this understanding, like Ajahn Suchito tells us, is understanding suffering. We have to get very familiar with suffering. If we don't understand the mechanisms of suffering, it's very hard to be happy. We have to see again and again the way that we fantasize about finding some security, building a life without seeing underneath there's a river that's just sweeping it away again and again. We have to get familiar with that rub, this like very fundamental feeling that things aren't quite right. And there's all kinds of dukkha. I mean, there's big dukkha, physical pain, grief, loss, sorrow anger, heartache. But there's also a very subtle kind of like, just keep trying to get it right, and it just keeps slipping away again and again. We're so tired. We're so tired, aren't we? I've heard many of you say this. It's exhausting. So we have to take responsibility We have to take responsibility for that habit that we have of trying to find security in something that's fundamentally insecure. Matthew Brinsilver says, it's like fidgeting our way from cradle to grave, trying to rearrange the conditions of our life. And we don't learn about the seeds of suffering that operate everywhere. 
So when we take accountability and responsibility for this suffering, it's not about shame. It's not where, like we're doing something wrong. We actually can open to a lot of compassion and care. Like, oh, look, <sighs> doing that again. And then we see everybody is doing this. And this path of self-inquiry is very perilous. It feels like we might find something here that's less worthy of our life. But we won't find that. We find what we find is wise attention. This yoniso manasikara, wise attention, whose activity is knowing the source. feels very dark sometimes, unknown. And what mindfulness can do, this wise attention, this wise attending, even in the midst of all the shake and all the storms and this grief and this kind of frustration, like, okay, I'm seeing all the strategies and how they don't work again and again. And I see how all these habits, and it's like, frustrating. It's like we're watching this clenched fist and it actually can't, we can't force it open. It's just clenched. It's just clenched. It's tired. It's sad. It's scared, right? We just feel that. What do we do? What do we do? But when we bring wise attention, this caring, this attending to, this compassionate awareness, it's not alone, right? Because we have the fist and then we have the knowing of it. And that's the accompaniment. Like, oh, I'm not just this clenched fist. I'm not just this fear. I'm also this wide, deep, very steady kind of knowing. So however thick the suffering is, can we feel into that accompaniment that is here all the time and prioritize that with the suffering? Yeah. I feel, I know, I care. I care enough about this moment to be here for it. And in this way, the accompaniment, the befriending, the curiosity, the turning towards, we do have more clear seeing. We can say, oh, what I'm feeling right now is this very particular flavor of grief that comes from disappointment. But there's a very particular kind of fear that's actually no story, it's just the nervous system that's activated. And that naming, that being able to be very precise with our naming, actually brings relief also. So my teacher Joseph Goldstein talks about this. He talks about, he lived in, at IMS in one of the yogi rooms for like 14 years. And then a benefactor built a house for him and Sharon next door. And as a kind of inaugural way of moving into his house, he did a long retreat there. And he said he started doing this retreat and practicing, and something was kind of off. He's like, couldn't really quite name this feeling, but he sort of felt uncomfortable, and he was in this house and trying to do retreat. And then finally, he identified that what he was feeling was embarrassment because his house was too nice. It's like, Dharma teachers are not supposed to live in this nice house. And it was this big light, like, oh, okay, I'm just embarrassed. And then he realized he would rather live in the house and be embarrassed than go back to live in that little room. (laughs) 
So that relief that's like, oh yeah, this is just how it is. You know, humor, lightness, levity. So Mariana Kaplan says this, what is brighter, more essential, and more true can shine forth when we break down the illusions we've overlaid onto reality. In seeing, there exists a possibility to take far greater responsibility for our lives, open ourselves to more understanding, more heartbreak, more challenge, more expansion, and also to serve humanity in progressively deeper ways. So you see how we're not just like parsing out moments and just paying attention to change. This has very good, big implications, this practice. More capacity to feel and also more capacity to help. So we feel again and again into this kind of knowing, this wisdom that's growing. And as it does, empty, we empty out, empty out all those strategies. And what's left? What's left? It's love. Love is what's left. Do you feel that? As we empty out the self, the delusion, the strategies, the veils, the emptiness is full. It's like a luminous darkness, and that full is only a response. Maybe the body is only hands and eyes. It's only this quivering of the heart that responds. It's infused with love. Wisdom and love are the same. Thich Nhat Hanh says that if your child does not sense that your love is infused with understanding, you will not feel like love to them. So love is not separate from wisdom. There's always a kind of knowing in our love. So this kind of knowing we have to celebrate, right? We're on this path of understanding, of vision and light and knowledge and understanding arose in me regarding things unknown before. There's delight in this, joy. This path is one of happiness. Of course, we have to wade through all of the suffering to get there, but... Who is it? I think Suzuki Roshi said, you know, it's all this yearning for enlightenment. And he said, the path is almost as good. Almost as good. All along the way, we have these little, even joy right in the middle of the deepest kind of pain, that accompaniment, that trust. This is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And yet in the Dharma, again and again, we have to encounter this place where we can't actually take our knowing. We can't take any of this understanding to certain places at a certain point in the Dharma. We have to let go of even this knowing. Hmm. Another beautiful Matthew Brensilver line, he says, wanting to know is like grafting our neurosis onto the Dharma. We bring all of our greed, all of our like, I just got to figure this out and then I'm going to be okay. Right? Don't we? So the knowing is infused 
with wanting and fear. It's so true. I'm sure you've had this. You just want to figure it out. I had this in a big way in my long retreat at IMS. I just wanted to know, like, where do all the staff live? And what are all those teachers saying behind the door anyway? And all the yogi notes, what are they saying actually? Like, and I really, this is horrible to say, but I would stand outside the interview room waiting for my meeting and try to hear <laughs> what was going on. Terrible. Thank goodness for the noisemakers. I couldn't hear it. But there was this like wanting to know things so badly. It's painful. It's painful grafting our neurosis onto the Dharma. So there's nothing wrong about all of this security and the wanting to know. But the Dharma is about something else. Suzuki Roshi says, In the light there is darkness, but don't take it as darkness. In the dark there is light, but don't see it as light. Can the knowing be infused with letting go? Can the knowing be infused with the willingness to not know? This part is all completely Bren Silver. So he has this description of like, Okay, so we have this idea of what this moment is. And then we graft it, we we project it onto the next moment. We predict what's going to happen next. And that in that way, we just weave this kind of story of a self and a life and a being and a personality moment by moment. But actually what's true is that we're at the brink of something we don't know moment by moment by moment, and it's always vanishing. How is that? And I've talked to some of you, when we're really in touch with that, it's terrifying. Not knowing, not knowing, dying, 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 gone, gone, gone. How is it to let go of that dream that we're dreaming ourselves into existence? And we have to push again. The fear, the fear for me, that's what first arises. It's not delight. Sometimes there can be delight, like, whoa, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe it's like a roller coaster. You go up, 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 up. Right before the day before this retreat started, I went on a roller coaster. And this is one that's like very high, and you just slowly, slowly cranking up, 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 up. And you feel that cresting over the top. And that's what it is every moment, like, oh. (laughs) How would it be to live that way? And you feel both the fear and the joy, don't you? Of like excitement, actually. Everything is unpredictable. We don't know what's going to happen. We were sitting in the teacher room and just sort of talking, and all of a sudden this huge, it's like the metal, you know, the metal glasses, like these cups, metal, full of knives, butter knives, <laughs> fell off the, and just crashed onto the printer. It was like the world was ending. It was so loud. (laughs) Could happen at any moment. We don't know. 
Oh. Actually, we went on this roller coaster in honor of my teacher, Kempo Sultrum Gatsa Rinpoche, this lovely Tibetan teacher, my first Tibetan teacher, who loved roller coasters because fear actually shows you the nature of the mind in the most clear way. this is a little bit this path it's a paradox we're like knowing sounds we're knowing sights we're knowing just these very concrete moments of sensation right and we've been guiding you you have your anchor feet on the ground feet on the ground i'm holding a ball holding a ball holding a ball right very steadying actually there's these objects that we can know and then we find ourselves in new territory so this is dogen Dogen's this very famous, beautiful Zen master who wrote the Genjo Koan. So he says, when you see forms or hear sounds fully engaging body and mind, this is what we've been doing, seeing forms, hearing sounds fully engaging body and mind, you intuit dharmas intimately. You know the dharma, the truth, intimately. Unlike things and their reflection in the mirror, And unlike the moon and its reflection in the water, when one side is illuminated, one side is knowing, the other side is dark. So one part of you is knowing clearly what's happening moment by moment, stepping, stepping, in, out. The other side is not knowing what the hell is going on. Don't know anything. Can't predict it can't even trust that your perception is true. Same side. It's not like a reflection in the mirror. It's the same. So Angel Kyoto Williams, very inspiring teacher for me. She has this to say about the practice, and really she's talking about anti-racism work, but to me this is the description of the whole path. She says, it's a path of confusion. In order to undo the confusion you don't know you have, you first have to be completely confused. Everything you think you know about how things are has to be set aside. To do that, you must acknowledge with absolute certainty that you've been completely caught up. You have to just assume that you're careening through space, a ball of willful ignorance of wrong knowing. Careening through space, a ball of willful ignorance of wrong knowing. That is the beginning of the path. The moment you're entirely clear that you know absolutely nothing. So for me, I've been mentioning some, the fear that I've had and the deep uh, kind of wrestling I'm doing in my own practice these days, wrestling with reality. Very deep, painful, habitual patterns. And what I can feel is this kind of spin of stories, very painful stories, 
fear-based stories. I know they're trying to protect, but there's all this story and all this storytelling and trying to believing. I believe that. I believe that. What's true? I don't know, but I'm going to try to fixate on the scariest story so that I'm going to defend myself. So I'll be ready if that scariest thing happens, right? I'm watching all that happen. The security, the trying to dream comes some kind of reality, even if it's the worst case scenario, right? Lots of painful stories. But if I can drop underneath that, if I can drop underneath that and remember, this is a story that I'm telling myself. It's like that dreaming myself into, into existence. I'm predicting a lot of delusion and a lot of fear what's coming next. And I can just say it's just a story. This is a story I'm telling myself. Sometimes I can drop it and be in that kind of relief, actually, that I just don't know. I just don't know what's going to happen. Can you feel it? It's both. It's both freedom and it's fear. So this one might be my favorite Japanese koan. So a very good student, straight A student, is going on pilgrimage, all packed, bags ready. She's got her walking sticks. She meets her teacher. And the teacher asks, where are you going? And the student says, I'm going on pilgrimage. And the teacher says, what is the purpose of pilgrimage? And the student says, I don't know. And the teacher nods approvingly and says, not knowing is nearest. Not knowing is most intimate. Not knowing is most intimate. The one way we can get in touch with this not knowing is through perception. And through human history, the sort of knowledge, the research, the psychology of perception has been this assumption that there are external objects, ceiling, floor, tables, chairs, cushions. And all of these objects activate receptors in our sense organs. And that information is translated then into a perception that we see, ceiling, lights, chair, I know what to do with a door know how to navigate the room, right? Through all of this external stimuli that's coming into us, being interpreted through our organs. And other animals, other beings have different perceptions, right? So some animals, dogs, have a wider range of smell than we do. Or cats and bats can see in the dark, They can see in the dark, but they can't see the same variety of colors. So which perception is true? Which external object is actually accurately perceived, is being accurately perceived? And through this line of investigation, what they're learning now in psychology is that it's actually flipped. So instead of external objects activating our perception, what's happening is actually from the inside 
our assumptions, our predictions, our past knowledge of what a door is or what a chair is, is conditioning. It's moving from the inside out through our sense organs. So we're predicting that if I open this door handle, it's going to be a door and it will open. So inside out, you can see how that can be pretty mistaken. And we do. We mistake things all the time. We see a stick, we think it's a snake. So what does that mean? If we're projecting our predictions onto reality, just based on what we has come before, which is also infused with delusion, it means all of our dreamscape, these moments we're dreaming ourselves into, is based on our own karma. All of our past mind states, our past sense impressions, our past experiences, historically, generationally. Every moment has conditioned. It leaves a legacy for the next one. Can you feel that? Everything is in this one moment. And it's being completely filtered through you. So we're not seeing the world, actually. We're seeing our mind. We're not seeing the world as it is. We're seeing the world as we are. In the Dhammapada, all experience is led by mind, made by mind, preceded by mind. So how would it be to let go of all of that wanting things to be the way we want them to be, wanting reality to be this way, suspending our knowing? not trying to see things in a new way. It's not trying to like let go of our delusion and see reality. It's just letting go of wanting. It's just letting go of wanting. And when the wanting dissolves, and you've had this, when there isn't wanting, those moments, what is that? There's a newness. Something very new is there. Maybe it's many hands and eyes. Maybe it's love. Maybe it's just open. We don't know what it is for you. And so we have to be willing to know that we don't know. Orin reminded me of this Chinese proverb, to know that we know what we know and that we do not know what we do not know. That is true knowledge. To just keep letting go and letting go and letting go. And this letting go is going into the dark, being willing to undo everything we've done, everything we've become, all the being, all the projects. We have to really to be willing to slough it off, to let it go, to not know. This is very disorienting. It's terrifying. And this is why, and we keep saying this again and again, we need a deep kind of refuge. We need this sense of holding many hands and eyes all over the body in order to be able to let go. This is what Ajahn Suchito says, actually letting go requires holding. 
Not exactly holding on, but holding or being held. You're held with awareness, held with tenderness, held with patience, held with this beautiful firmness that's not savage or harsh, but just held carefully. And in the holding carefully, holding tenderly, holding with clarity, something in us starts to feel that and we begin to relax. We begin to relax the holding. So many of you have heard me say this before. It's one of my favorite teachings. There's a analogy that this dharma, this feeling our way in the dark, is like jumping out of an airplane, right? Just free fall in space. And so that's the terrifying part. And then it's, and we get even more scared because we look back and we see we don't have a parachute, right? Letting go of even any knowing, letting go of even the dharma or all the things we've understood. Terror. But then we look down and we see that there isn't any ground either. And perhaps maybe it's the space that's holding us. So what we expected was a refuge isn't a refuge, but it's something else. In the Sandokai, another famous Zen poem, it says, the spiritual source shines clear in the light. The branching streams flow on in the dark. So as we get lighter, as we start to understand, as we open and we trust the holding, we have joy, we have delight, and the branching streams flow on in the dark. It's a new kind of wonder. Can't quite know what uh, way that river is carving. It's dark. Sometimes it feels subterranean. And yet we start to know again and again that this is what's trustworthy. All of the other things I thought were trustworthy are not. And this branching stream flowing on in the dark is what's really trustworthy. I can rest here. And through that resting, through that reaching for a pillow in the dark, you feel the compassion there. You feel the compassion in the reaching for the pillow. We feel that there's something true. There's something very deeply true. Not all the predictions, not all the projections, not all the ways we try to defend and secure. And that truth, that unknown, unfamiliar wondrous, frightening kind of truth is what liberates us. And so instead of wanting to know out of greed, we want to know because we're in love with the truth. We're in love with this kind of truth. We're devoted to it. We're giving our life to it. Devoted to this truth. And this desire for freedom, desire for the truth, supersedes our comfort. It supersedes our desire for safety because we can be held by the many hands and the many eyes. And it's a new kind of beauty. And it's a new kind of love. 
that's spacious, that's available, that can't be disconnected. It's intimate with all things, just here, just now, so responsive, ready, ready to help. And that's another pose of Kuan Yin. Kuan Yin's in the back of the room, and her, her pose like this is that she's ready to jump up, right? Get up and go. Available, responsive. So I have two quotes that I could not decide which one to end with. I couldn't decide. (laughs) So I'm going to just choose one, and then maybe tomorrow you'll get the other one. This is by Ann Hillman. We look with uncertainty. We look with uncertainty beyond the old choices for clear-cut answers to a softer, more permeable aliveness, which is every moment at the brink of death. For something new is being born in us if we but let it. We stand in a new doorway, awaiting that which comes, daring to be human creatures, vulnerable to the beauty of existence, learning to love. We can just let the words settle here for a moment or two. We look with uncertainty beyond the old choices for clear-cut answers to a softer and more permeable aliveness, which is every moment at the brink of death. For something new is being born in us if we but let it. We stand at a new doorway, awaiting that which comes, daring to be human creatures, vulnerable to the beauty of existence, learning to love. Thank you so much for your kind attention. It really is such a blessing to be here with you. So what we'll do this evening is uh, come back. We'll do some walking. Um, really encourage you to do even just a little bit of walking. You might go get ready for bed too if you want.
reach for your pillow in the dark. But then come back here. (laughs) Come back here and we'll do just a little bit of chanting. Uh, The walking will help kind of settle all these ideas, even if none of it made sense. Settle, walk. Come back here, we'll chant very briefly. And then what we're going to do is I'll just get up and go, you know, after a little bit of time. And you can really feel into what's right for your body in terms of how long you want to sit. So there won't be a bell. There'll just be this sense of, yeah, when, when is it really time to head to bed and how much energy is there still to stay up sitting a little bit quietly together. And same for, for those at home. You're really welcome to um, come back in half an hour, a little bit of chanting with us, and then feel into your own rhythm for what, what's best for bed or rest. So um, thank you, everyone. I'll see you soon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.